This is going to be a very Wolby family-centric Parsha podcast, because as I mentioned last week, today I'm going to tell you what I said, what I orated at the bris of my son, Yisrael Mayor Wolby, last week. I mentioned that last week. That's the subject of this week's Parsha podcast. But in addition, at the end of the podcast, when we get to the exquisite insight, I brought on a guest to tell of an amazing story. My 10-year-old daughter, Miriam, is going to be in the podcast at the end, at the exquisite insight at the end of the show. So listen to that. A very Wolby-centric podcast. I hope you enjoy from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Let's begin. So last week, we were blessed and privileged by the Almighty to fulfill a very important and special mitzvah, the mitzvah of doing a circumcision, of doing a bris for our son, whom we named Yisrael Meir. Now, as I mentioned last time, because it was a Monday bris, everyone's antsy. You know, we we made previously... Thank God, we made three brises, three circumcision ceremonies, a bris, three circumcision ceremonies on a Sunday. On a Sunday, you bring out the bagels and the lots and the tuna fish and the cream cheese, and everyone stays as long as you want. And we also made a bris on Shabbos, and that's not time-constrained either. But Monday morning, everyone's got to go to work, everyone's got to be places and do things. So if you want to give a speech, you got to do it really quickly. You have to expedite it. You have to wrap it up really quickly to make sure you have a minion in time for benching to make sure you have a quorum, a sufficient quorum in time for the benediction, the prayer, the grace that we say after eating. So I went through it really quickly, but now we're going to tell the speech or the idea in detail. Now, why do we wait until this week? The answer for anyone who has perused our Parsha, the answer is obvious. Our Parsha, Parsha's Tazria, most years Tazria is lumped together with Parsha's Mitzora because this year is a leap year. We have Tazria and Mitzora separated. So this week is Tazria, next week is Mitzora. Now there is an interesting note, just a total side note. In this week in Shul, there are going to be three different Torah readings because we have a very unusual confluence where it's going to be Shabbos, on Shabbos, of course, and it's also going to be Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the month of Nisan, and it's also going to be the special week that we read Parshas HaChodesh, and therefore, in shuls that have the luxury of many Torah scrolls, they're going to take out not one Torah scroll from the Ark, not two Torah scrolls from the Ark. They're actually going to do the very rare three Torah scrolls taken out from the Ark this week. But the subject of our Parsha, Parsha Tazria, is the laws of purity and impurity. Very esoteric laws, very complicated laws, very difficult laws, and of course laws that are not relevant to us, or at least mostly, largely not relevant to us. But it begins with the laws that relate to a woman who has recently gave birth to either a male or a female. And it throws in on the third verse of our Parsha, Ubayom Hashmini, a woman who has a boy, a woman who gives birth to a male, Ubayom Hashmini, on the eighth day, Yimol Besar Orloso, the flesh or the, the, the skin of his foreskin shall be circumcised, shall the bris milah ceremony shall happen on the eighth day. So this is the mitzvah that we circumcise our boys on day eight. It's featured in our parsha. Now, incidentally, this is something that we have already seen in the past in the book of Genesis. Of course, chapter 17, God tells Abraham, I want you to circumcise. And this is going to be the tradition in your family on the eighth day the boys are going to be circumcised. It is repeated in our parsha, the Talmud tells us, because it teaches us extra laws. So the verse says, Ubayom Hashmini, which means on the eighth day, the circumcision has to happen on day eight. On the eighth day, even if the eighth day is Shabbos, typically, you know, to do the circumcision ceremony would be a violation 
of the restriction against working on Shabbos. You cannot create a wound that draws blood on Shabbos. But nevertheless, Ubayoma Shmina, the eighth day, even if the eighth day is Shabbos, you would do a circumcision ceremony, you would do a bris. As I mentioned earlier, my son Yehoshua was born on Shabbos and his circumcision was eight days later on the following Shabbos. Notwithstanding the prohibition against drawing blood on Shabbos, if the circumcision is scheduled on day eight for Shabbos, that can be temporarily suspended. So we have this amazing mitzvah, and this is not an ordinary mitzvah. Of course, no mitzvah really is ordinary. But this is a very special mitzvah. This is a very central mitzvah. It is, as I mentioned, the first mitzvah given to our people. Abraham, when he is selected to be the person who's going to head the family, that's going to burgeon into the nation, the nation of God, the Jewish people, the chosen people, the first mitzvah that he is given is the mitzvah of circumcision. Previously, you have the seven Noahide laws, the seven universal laws, but the first law given exclusively to Abram and his family is the circumcision. There's obviously something noteworthy about that. It's also the first mitzvah done by a Jewish child. This is almost like the initiation into the nation. Moreover, it is almost what symbolizes us as a nation. This is like the emblematic aspect of our people. If you remember in Genesis, when Shimon and Levi, when their sister Dina was abducted by Shechem, by the city of Shechem, and the individual named Shechem, and the individual named Chamor, and they did the whole ruse to lull those enemies into a state of lack of vigilance, they said to them, we can't join your people. We can't become one nation. After all, you're uncircumcised and we are circumcised. And of course, the people of Shem agreed to be circumcised on day three when they were weak and vulnerable. Shimon and Levi swept through the city, killing all the men and rescuing Dina. But again, we're told over there that what symbolizes our people is the circumcision. This is the defining characteristic of our people. In fact, in Jewish sources, in Jewish literature, short code almost for a Jew is circumcised and a non-Jew is uncircumcised. And interestingly, I find this very thought-provoking. Today, of course, the Jewish people were a very diverse people. And we're also religiously diverse You have people that are very, very observant to every jot and tittle of the Torah, want to do everything perfectly, the righteous people. And they have people that sadly have lapsed from their involvement, from their engagement, from their participation, from their observance of the laws of the Torah. But nevertheless, there is one mitzvah that Jews almost universally cling to regardless of their general level of observance. Even Jews who sadly observe few or even none of the Torah's mitzvos, they don't eat matzah on Pesach or they don't shake a lulav on Sukkot and they don't hear a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. They are not members of a shul. They don't observe Shabbos. They don't eat exclusively kosher. They're not observant. And of course, it's our mandate and mission to try to present the value and the beauty and the importance and the indispensability of Torah mitzvahs to all of our Jewish brethren, that is our mandate and our responsibility. And we are not judgmental of those people who knows, maybe in the eyes of God, they are more righteous than us. But it's interesting that you find a pattern where Jews that generally are not observant, they still circumcise their boys. Obviously, it's not 100%. But isn't it interesting that there is this innate understanding that this mitzvah is like the mark of our people? And even those who are willing to forego everything for reasons that they could probably not rationally explain, they seek to retain, so to speak, membership in the nation. 
with this mitzvah. So clearly, the mitzvah of circumcision is very important. On the flip side, from the perspective of the non-Jews, it seems to me that this mitzvah is the mitzvah for which we are most criticized and disdained over. This mitzvah, more than any other, raises the ire of our enemies against us. Throughout history, in different times, in different empires, amongst different cultures and peoples, this mitzvah was repeatedly banned. Of course, in the times of Hanukkah, Antiochus, the Greeks, they banned this mitzvah. The Romans, Hadrian, did the same. Of course, in the Soviet Union, you are not allowed to circumcise your sons. And there are many heroic stories of people who did it nonetheless, but this was against the Soviet rule. Even today, this mitzvah is being attacked as barbaric. It's mutilation. And there are attempts, and there always have been, attempts to ban it. Now, the Midrash tells us something interesting. Even Abraham. Abraham was worried that if he would circumcise in a public fashion, he would be killed. So there's something uniquely Jewish about this mitzvah, and really central to our people and to our religion and to our nation, and something that is really revolting or something very, very troublesome to our opponents, to our enemies about this particular mitzvah. So what is the meaning behind this mitzvah? What lessons can we learn from the mitzvah of the bris, of the circumcision, of the removal of the foreskin that we do to our boys on day eight? So I want to suggest an approach. The Talmud tells us something really fascinating and fundamental about circumcision. This is featured in the book of Nidarim on page 32a. It tells us that this mitzvah has the unusual and rare distinction of being labeled as equivalent to all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Gdola Mila, great is the mitzvah of bris mila of circumcision, sheshkula kola mitzvos shabbat Torah, that it's equal, it is equivalent to all the mitzvos in the Torah. The Torah has a lot of mitzvos. The Torah has a lot of instructions, a lot of guidelines, a lot of rules, a lot of obligations. Mitzvos, we call them. The Talmud tells us that there are 613 general categories of mitzvos. But even the mitzvahs themselves, they're categories, and there are subcategories. There is so much in the Torah by way of guidance and instruction for us, a manual for living, how to maximize life. What are the Almighty's instructions, the manufacturer's instructions for how to maximize your opportunities in your lifetime? There's one mitzvah that is equal to the rest of the Torah combined. Brismila, circumcision, is Torah in a box. Everything that Torah is supposed to do to you, the big picture is found in this mitzvah. There's the old saying that you lose the forest by looking at all the trees. With Torah, there are many details. And you could get caught up in the myriad, minute details and fail to see the big picture. This mitzvah is equal to the whole thing. This is a microcosm of Torah at large. This gives us a picture of the goal of Torah and the processes of Torah and what Torah is supposed to do to you. It's all found in one mitzvah. Let us examine the evidence. Of course, we can start with a question. There seems to be a theological problem with this mitzvah. You have a baby boy that's born, and the boy's perfect. Ten fingers, five in the right hand, five in the left hand. The toes are all in place. All the organs are in place. The ears are great. The nose is great. The eyes are great. 
maybe even has a little dusting of hair. This is a perfect child delivered to you by the Almighty. If you think about it, that's a real miracle. You know, what did the parents do? What were the inputs? Weren't uh, really thinking about all the details. And a kid emerges with everything working perfectly, all the systems and all the cells, and everything is just designed with absolute exquisite perfection. And what do we do? We wait a week and we take a scalpel and we alter the body. We cut off a part of the body. Isn't there a problem? Isn't there a theological problem with circumcision, with the bris? Why would we alter? Why would we change? Why would we mutilate what God has given us? Is that a good question? It's an interesting, stimulating question, no? And this question, the Midrash in our Parsha tells us, was asked to the great Rabbi Akiva. The Midrash records a discussion between Rabbi Akiva, of course, the greatest rabbi of his era, and the Roman governor of Judea, a gentleman by the name of Ternus Rufus. And the Talmud, in several places, the Midrash records debates and discussions that this Ternus Rufus this Roman governor or proconsul that he had with the great rabbis of his time, including Rabbi Akiva. And one of the questions was about our question. Why would you alter what God gave you? God gave you something perfect. Why would you change it? Why would you mutilate it? But this individual, Ternus Rufus, was very clever, and he asked the question in a clever fashion to try to trap Rabbi Akiva. He asked him like this, Ezu Naim, whose deeds are more favorable or more beautiful, the deeds of God or the deeds of man? So this sounds like a trap. Of course, the obvious answer is, well, of course, God's deeds are greater than man's deeds. But Rabbi Akiva did not fall for the trap. He said to him, the deeds of man are greater than the deeds of God. So Turnus Rufus says, wait a minute, how could he possibly say that? Look at the heavens and look at the mountains and look at the skies and look at the galaxies and look at the solar system and the stars. Can man make that? That's the handiwork of God. How can you say that man's handiwork is greater than God's handiwork? So Rufus says, well, that's not fair. Man cannot make that. And therefore, you can ask whose deeds are greater. You can only ask in an area, in an arena where both man and God are operating. Only then is it a fair question. So Turnus Rufus amends his question. He says, why do you circumcise? His question is our question. God gave you a child. What an amazing celebration. What an amazing gift from God. He loves you, gives you another, a child, a soul, a body. Everything is perfect. Why would you change that? Why do you think your deeds are better than God's deeds? So Rekiva responded to him, that's what I thought you were asking. And that's why I told you that man's deeds are greater than God's deeds. And he brings him some evidence. He pulls out some stalks of wheat and some loaves of bread. And he says, which ones are greater? The stalks of wheat, of course. Well, that's God's deeds. Good luck trying to chew on those kernels. But what happens? We take the kernels and we grind them. We turn it into flour, and we mix it with water, and we knead them together, and we make a loaf, and we put it in the oven. And when it's done, we have bread. Now we can enjoy it. Evidence, says Rabbi Akiva, that our deeds are greater than God's deeds. What an amazing thing. Rabbi Akiva proves to the Roman governor that our deeds outshine God's deeds. Circumcision is better than lack of circumcision. But the Roman didn't give up quite yet. And he pivoted to a new question. So the first question of 
how can we change what God did? Robert Kiefer responded, hey, look at, look at the wheat. Wheat's not very useful unless you process it, unless you add human deeds to it. And therefore, the same thing can be applied to the circumcision. The Roman pivoted then to a new question. If God is desirous of the circumcision, let him deliver the child already circumcised. Why does the child not emerge from the womb of his mother already pre-circumcised? Everything is done. Amar Lord responded, the reason why the child emerges uncircumcised it's because God gave us the mitzvos with the intention of us perfecting ourselves. God created us, not like angels. Angels, they're perfect. Their creation is perfect, and they maintain that status for the rest of their existence. God wanted humans. Humans are flawed. Humans are fallible. Humans have problems. And the objective of creation, says Rabbi Tiva, is for the human who is flawed, who is lacking, who is imperfect, to perfect themselves. That is why God created man in the way he did it. Of course, imperfect, symbolized by the lack of circumcision. And the goal of Torah and mitzvot are to use them as tools to upgrade ourselves, to make ourselves more perfect. Some very important, central, and deep ideas here are being conveyed regarding the mitzvah of Prismila and what they teach us about Torah mitzvahs in general. To be circumcised is better than to be uncircumcised. You're more perfected. You're more refined. You're fixed. But God delivers you to this world unfixed, unrefined, imperfect. And he wants us to finish the job. He wants us to perfect ourselves. God wants to partner with us in the exquisite and important goal of creating perfection amongst humanity. So he delivers us a product, both in a child, but really any human, all humans. We're flawed. We have bad character. We have bad inclinations. We have bad habits. We have a default ignorance to the existence of a God. We come here imperfect. And the objective is for us to use the superpowers of Torah and mitzvot to perfect ourselves. And the end result of that is a partnership, what we call a public-private partnership between man and God. And this is symbolized by the bris, but it's emblematic of Torah in general. One aspect of Torah in a box is the fact that we come here and we're imperfect. And the objective is to use Torah mitzvot to perfect ourselves. Idea number one. The mitzvah also tells us how to do it. The mitzvah in a box, the microcosm of Torah mitzvahs at large, circumcision also tells us how to perfect ourselves. The Ramban, in his comment to the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 8, excuse me, verse 9, he points out that this mitzvah this branding of the Jew is featured in a very specific location. In the place, in the organ, where the most capacity for sin and for rejection of God is present. We're born imperfect. We're born with an inclination to deviate away from God, to depart from the ways of God. That's the challenge. That's the conflict. That's why life matters. That's why life is interesting. We have free will. We can become great. We can become angelic. And we can, and we can become terrible people as well. And that dichotomy or those very polar opposite outcomes 
are featured in the exact location where the circumcision is rendered. The animalistic instinct that we have, called the Yetzirah, that operates more than any other place over there. The conflict of life, the reason why we are here, the dual opposite opportunities that we have with our life over here is featured most strongly at the location of the bris. We have the capacity for great accomplishments. We can become very spiritual. We can become eternal. If you think about it, this is something I wrote about in my book quite uh, extensively. Man is created in the image of God. We have some aspect of ourselves that we too can become creators in a very literal sense as well. If we are fortunate enough to be fertile, we can be alive, so to speak, for thousands of years, for all eternity, in our children. And the Talmud says that explicitly. If you leave a child who's righteous, you don't die. You don't die, you're still alive. What if you have seven children or ten children? And they have children, and so on. You can be a father of a great, or a mother, patriarch or a matriarch of a great nation. You have the capacity to be a creator of a nation. You're created in the image of God. But in that very same organ that gives us that grand capacities of being a creator, we also have the potential to waste it all, to waste our superpower. And we have those impulses, of course, to just waste it all and to be very selfish and to not think about the big picture, to not think about the eternal consequences of our behavior, to not think about the grand opportunities if we put in the hard work now. And that's the conflict. And that's the free will. And this mitzvah is placed over there to symbolize the grand opportunities, and of course, the potential pitfalls of our life. And the mitzvah tells us more. It tells us the result of Torah and mitzvahs. Again, we're postulating here that the bris, the circumcision, is Torah in a box. With one mitzvah, you can see the whole picture, the whole forest of what Torah is. And we've seen so far, it's well, it's the tools to perfect yourself. You're not perfect. You can perfect yourself. It's placed in a very specific location where those very divergent outcomes are featured. The mitzvah also, point number three, reveals to us the result of Torah. The Talmud tells us that we have two potential masters. We can accept the dominion of God, or we can follow the false God, the fake God, the foreign God, the faux God, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. One of the nicknames, says the Talmud, in the book of Sukkah, on page 52a, one of the nicknames of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, of the foreign God, is Arel is the foreskin. And on a deeper level, the Kabbalists tell us that the foreskin is an extra appendage, so to speak, added on top of our body, specifically concealing a crown, because the Yetzirah, the foreign god, is concealing the crown of the real god. And with this mitzvah, we're symbolizing what we're supposed to do with all the mitzvahs, and that is to cut off the blockages, to remove the concealment, and thereby exposing the crown of God. We have the potential to be bearers of the crown of God, to be purveyors of his existence, and to follow his instructions, and to be beacons for the whole world. We can bear the crown of God within us. But to do that, we first have to remove the foreign god, the foreskin. And again, we have a mitzvah that's a microcosm, 
Torah in the box, the objective of all of mitzvos is to remove the foreign god and to expose the crown of God in the world. And this is something that is very central. It's very pivotal. And it's not something we could just take big breaks from. The Talmud tells us in the book of Menachos on page 43b, Tanu Rabbanu, the rabbis taught, Chavivim Yisrael. Israel is cherished because they were encircled. They were enveloped by God with mitzvos. We are surrounded with mitzvos. We have tefillin on our heads and tefillin on our arms and tzitzis on our garments and a mezuzah on our door. And regarding these mitzvos, David said in Psalms 119, I have praised you seven times every day thanks to your just mitzvos. We're beloved. We're fortunate because we are surrounded with mitzvos. And David was very delighted and he praised God seven times thanks to all these amazing mitzvos. Continues the Talmud. When David went to the bathhouse and he saw himself standing and he was naked. In a bathhouse, of course, you're taking a bath. If you're taking a bath, you're not wearing your tefillin. Not the tefillin on your head. Not the tefillin on your arm. You're not wearing your tzitzis in your garment. The doors of a bathhouse are not allowed to have a mezuzah. David said, wait a minute. All those mitzvahs that were surrounding me, that were enveloping me, are now gone. Amar Oli, woe to me. I'm standing naked from any mitzvahs. Then he remembered the one mitzvah that's always with him. He remembered the circumcision in his flesh, and then he was calmed, and then he was placated, and then he was assuaged and mollified. And when he got out of the bathhouse, he added another psalm. Not just, I have praised you seven times each day, lam natsech ala shminis, a praise for the eighth, for the mitzvah of bris milah that is given on the eighth day. There's a very deep idea being conveyed here in the Talmud. Unlike every other mitzvah, that there are times that you do it and there are times that you don't do it, this mitzvah of the bris milah is stamped on you. It's branded to you. It's inseparable from you. There's never a time that you are without it. And I think this is part of the Torah in a box. This is a way of life. We think of Torah mitzvahs as being rituals, religious rituals, ceremonies. Here we're told that the bris milah and by extension, mitzvahs in general, again, the bris milah acting as a stand-in for Torah in general, Torah in a box, it's something that's with you at all times. Now, this idea is found all over our literature. The Torah, for example, is compared to bread. Bread you need, it's like a staple of human life. It's compared to water. It's compared to air, to oxygen. We can't take lapses from oxygen. We really can't, by extension, take lapses from Torah. Our status tell us that mitzvot is equivalent to food. You need it. They are indispensable. Now, of course, the problem is, the reason why we have free will is because we don't feel that hunger when we are alive with the body. But in the afterlife, when our soul is finally released from the body, the food that it consumes, that's only the spiritual food, the Torah and the mitzvahs. This idea, if I may give a shout out after all, this is a Walby family-centric podcast. If I may give a shout-out to my new book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, it's been released. Send me an email about it. There is a chapter called Miracle Drugs and Superfoods, and that explains this idea of the centrality and the indispensability of Torah mitzvos and how they are just vital. You need them. You can't live without them, even though you don't feel it. And that's why there is that dissonance. We tend to think of 
Torah as a nice thing. It's good lessons. It's wisdom. It's a valuable amenity to our lives. But we think of it as an ancillary aspect of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. Another aspect of Torah in a box that we learn from the circumcision, from the bris, is this reminder that it's supposed to be with us at all times. It's always needed. It is always vital. I want to end with some positive, amazing benefits. If you think about it, when you do a circumcision ceremony, when you do a bris, as we were fortunate enough to do last week, there are two blessings that are said. Asher al-hamila, the mitzvah of brismila, like many other mitzvahs, there is a blessing that we say beforehand, thanking God for the opportunity to do this mitzvah. And then the father of the child says a second mitzvah, a second blessing, lahachniso bivriso shel Avraham avinu. It's a blessing to enter the child into the covenant of Abraham, our forefather. We have very deep roots, our nation, our people. We have a foundation. The foundation, well, the, the patriarchs, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, our great antecedents, the giants, the titans who built our people. And Abraham forged a pact, a covenant with God. And that was symbolized by the circumcision. An eight-day-old child joins that exclusive fraternity of being part of the pact between Abraham and God. After the circumcision is finished, there are other blessings that are said, included the blessing of Asher Kidash Yidid Mi Beten, where the child, they're only a couple of days old, they don't do anything. They just, they just eat and go to the bathroom and cry. That's it. But they are described as a yedid, a friend, a chum, a comrade of God. How does a child who has accomplished nothing, how do they, how are they described as a comrade of God? The answer is, is that they have joined the exclusive fraternity of Abraham. And once you're part of that, Fraternity, you get all the benefits of being part of that, even if you haven't earned it. And I mentioned, this is how I finished up my speech here last week in the Torch Center. For my son Israel Mayer's bris, I quoted the Talmud. The Talmud says that in the future, Abraham will sit at the door of purgatory, of hell, of Gehenom. And he's not going to allow a single person who is circumcised, a single Jew who is circumcised, to enter into the gates of hell. So this mitzvah is an amazing opportunity because it right away brings a person into a much bigger framework, the fraternity of Abraham. And that too, I think we can add to our, to our framework of, of Torah and Abbas, that this is not just a person operating in isolation, siloed off from the rest of the world with mitzvos. We are part of a much bigger legacy that goes all the way back to Abraham, our forefather. So what do we have? We have an amazing picture. A mitzvah in our parsha. A mitzvah in our parsha that, you know, frankly, we don't think so much about. And the Talmud tells us this is equivalent to all of Torah with one mitzvah. Torah in a box, the forest of Torah. We are here to perfect ourselves. God does not do it for us. He delivers us here imperfect. We have to do it, and that's all we have Torah mitzvahs. We have Yetzirah, the evil inclination. It's symbolized by the foreskin. It is inhibiting the revelation of God's crown and kingdom from being manifest in the world. The bris, and by extension, Torah and mitzvahs, they remove the blockages and reveal the crown. It's no coincidence, the Ramban tells us, that the bris is placed at the epicenter of our conflict with the Yetzirah, with the foreign god. Torah and mitzvahs, they are indispensable. 
They have to be with us at all times. And this is what brings us into this nation with tremendous and eternal benefits. But of course, this mitzvah is just the beginning. You take a child, eight days old, they don't even know what's happening to them, and they are initiated into this great nation. The mitzvah is just the beginning. The ideas, the ideals, the themes of what this mitzvah represents, they are to accompany a child as they mature and as they live their lives. When Abraham was introduced to this mitzvah by God, God tells him, His halech I walk before me and be perfect. And our sages tell us that this is something which is ongoing. You are constantly walking with God when you do this mitzvah. It's not just a one-time thing. This is the initiation, but the ideals and the principles and the concepts of this mitzvah must accompany you throughout your lives. The great Rabbi Akiva Eder said, the Talmud says, this is maybe a little bit technical, Talmud says that if not for the breast meal of the circumcision, the world would cease to exist. And the Talmud quotes a verse, this is in the book of Nadarim, page 32a. Imlo brisi yomam valayla, if not for my covenant of day and night, the rules of the heaven I wouldn't, wouldn't have placed. Says the Talmud, if not for circumcision, the world will be destroyed. Asks the great rabbi, wait a minute. The verse says, Imlo brisi yomam valayla, if not for my covenant of day and night, how could that be referred to the covenant of circumcision, which can only be done by day? Answers Rabbi Ativa Eder, that it must mean that even though the mitzvah, the act of the circumcision is done only once and it's done only by day, but this is supposed to be the beginning of a whole life living up to the ideals and the principles of circumcision. And that is by day and by night. And I conclude in my speech with hope and with prayer that our son, Israel Mayer, and really all of our children, but everyone in the audience and everyone who's listening and the entire Jewish people, we live up to the ideals of this mitzvah. And just as we merited to bring the child into the covenant of Abraham, the traditional blessing that we say, just as they entered the bris, the covenant of Abraham, may he also enter Torah and Chuppah, the wedding canopy and Maisim Tovim, good deeds. And just one quick note, we named our son Yisrael, but not just Yisrael, Yisrael Mayer. And traditionally, you name it after people who have deceased, who have been deceased. So we named it after five different people. And I thought it would be nice to mention just the rationale that we had behind this name. So my wife and I, Chai and I, we have three relatives who passed away in the Holocaust who were named Yisrael. My grandmother had a brother who was killed by the Nazis named Yisrael Grudzinski. She also had a first cousin named Yisrael Vernikovsky. This is just a terrible story. Whenever I think about this, it's just so awful. So my grandmother, she had an uncle and an aunt named Vernikovsky. He was a Rosh Hashiva. He was a big Torah scholar in Poland, in, in Lomja in Poland. And it was a father and a mother, Rabbi Vernikovsky and Mrs. Vernikovsky, and 10 children, all of them were killed in the Holocaust. The whole family just completely destroyed in the Holocaust. And whenever I look at their names, I'm thinking like, I, I wish I could name after all of these children. And one of them, a, he was a small child named Yisrael. And we thought about that Yisrael as well. Moreover, Chaya's grandfather, had a brother named Yisrael, so we named Yisrael after him as well. So that's three Yisrael relatives who passed away, who perished in the Holocaust. But Yisrael Meir, that was the name of the great Chafetz Chaim. And the Chafetz Chaim, of course, was the leader of the Jewish people, passed away in 1933. But someone, and I mentioned this in, in the speech, someone, of course, who was a great sage and a very important personality and a great Tamachacham and a tzaddik, but also someone who I feel like is revered and beloved by all stripes of the Jewish people. 
You know, you have some people who are great sages and great rabbis, but they're revered only by, you know, by their constituency, by their yeshiva, by their Hasidic group. The Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir, he was beloved and revered by all, and it's a great privilege to name a child after him. And finally, I had a Rebbe, I had a teacher, I had an influencer who was one of the leaders of the yeshiva, one of the yeshivas that I was fortunate enough to study at. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Meir Hamnik. He was a, a real student of my grandfather. There are a lot of people who are pretenders, who claim to be students of my grandfather, but he was legit. And he was a very special person, very refined person. I have been reliably told that I wasn't the easiest student to shepherd, but he was always warm to me. He was always kind to me, even when I wasn't deserving of it. And he passed away recently. Uh, he was relatively young. He had a, a terrible illness, but he was a very special person, very refined person, a great Torah sage, but also someone who who lived a very refined and noble life, very noble person. And uh, we named our son after him. And we hope that our son lives up to the great ideals of this mitzvah, the mitzvah Brismila, and of course, the great tzaddikim and righteous people after whom he was named. Let's head to this week's Exquisite Insight. And we have a special guest this week for our Exquisite Insight segment in the Torch Studio. There's a young lady, and your name is? Miriam. Miriam. What's your last name? Walby. Miriam Walby. My daughter, Miriam, is here for the Exquisite Insight, and she has an incredible story to tell us that's going to be inspiring, enlightening, and life-changing. Is that right, Miriam? Yeah. Okay. Tell us a story about your camera. So, I really wanted a camera, and my grandparents were coming for a little bit, and my aunt was like, you're going to Houston and not bringing Mary my camera? So, she bought a camera for me, and my grandfather brought it to Houston for me, and... Wait, wait, let me, let me stop and ask a question. What? A camera? Is that like a, like a digital camera you take pictures with? Yeah. Like what we used to have 15 years ago? Uh-huh. Don't you, don't you just have... A smartphone, an iPhone, an Android, a Samsung. Isn't that what kids have today? How come you need a camera? So, um, my parents don't let me have a phone. And I just like having, like, cameras because they're, wait, like, wait, fun Wait, how come your parents don't let you have a camera, a, a phone? Because... My father thinks it's, like, not good for you to, like, watch and, like, do whatever you want on, like, a phone. Do you think, do, like, you think your father knows what he's talking about? Yeah. You think so? <laughs> do you wish that your father would change his mind and just get you an iPhone? Not really. Because, like, also I feel it just, like, wash all day. It, like, kills your brain. It kills your brain? No, it actually <laughs> annoys me. It annoys you? What What annoys you? That Like, it, like, hurts. Like, not, like, hurts, but, like... It just like hurts my brain. What well, when it, when you if you're watching on the phone, it hurts your brain. Or just like watching anything. Like, you feel you feel like this is so dumb. I should be doing something something more constructive. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's amazing, interesting. I have that now recorded. <laughs> I have that recorded. Okay, okay. So Miriam, tell me the story. So you got a camera three months ago. Your grandparents yeah. came. Your aunt bought a camera. She sent it with your grandparents. And what happened next? So um, they left and. I was using it and you taking pictures of just things. Yeah, just random things, I guess. And a little later, it was I had it one day and just like the next day it was gone. And like, it just I, disappeared. Yeah, like I did not see it again. And like about like a month and a half later, like two months later. Wait, so your phone just your camera just disappeared? Yeah. Like, and I did not see it. How, how, were you devastated? Were you okay with it? What happened? I was really upset and like, I was not okay with it. You that. were not okay? And, and what did you try to do? Like, where did you think you left I was it? Looking and I just couldn't find it. It was like in a really good hiding spot. Wait, but maybe you left it by your friend's house. Do you think maybe did you check your so friend's houses? I, or? I never brought it to my friend's house. So I never thought it was like there. And one time I brought it to school, but like, that was the only time I brought it to school and I brought it home. Like I had it after that and I just didn't see it again. And it was on Monte Shabbos. And on that Tuesday, my aunt 
is getting married. And I wanted to have the camera before we went to the wedding. So, well, let, let, let me stop you for a second here. Yeah. You're missing the camera. You're devastated. You're looking for it everywhere. Is there anything else that you're doing to try to find the camera? Because I remember, I remember looking for it myself. I was trying to help you. But what else did you do besides for looking? So I was also davening to Hashem that I should find it. Okay. So if you want to say davening to Hashem in ways that for people, what does that mean? How would you say that in praying. English? You were praying to Hashem. Okay. Very good. And was that like every day? Um, yeah. Every I day was... you were davening to Hashem, you were praying to Hashem to find it. Yeah. And do you feel like Hashem was listening? Yeah. Okay. So what happened? What happened? So, but you weren't finding it for a month, month and a half. You're looking for your. So my mother was talking to me and she said that some people, what they do is you donate money, like however much money, and then you say special tefila and special prayer, yeah. And you look for it, and then sometimes it like magically, not magically, but like it's easier to find. And um, so, so, so your mother tells you a process where you're missing something and you really want it badly. There's a special mm-hmm. prayer or a special tefila you say, and you give money. You give money to where? Where do you put? Where do you put the money? So there's a lot of things you could like donate to, but so you I, could donate to like a staka to charity. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So tell me what happened. So I donated money, and I said this was how, how much money did you donate? Fifteen dollars. Okay, that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And where do you know where you donated it? Um, I don't know. It was a place that you get they they give money to. Poor people in Israel. Okay, okay. So you donated fifteen dollars, which is a lot of it's a lot of money for someone your age. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for anyone, right? Fifteen dollars is a lot of money. I recall telling you that you should give just five dollars, and you said no. I want to give fifteen. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so you gave fifteen dollars and you said a special prayer. What was the nature of that prayer? You want to read it to me? Read me just the English of it. Okay, so Rabbi Benjamin said everyone is. Presumed to be blind until the Holy One, blessed to He, is He, opens their their eyes. As it is written, God opens her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin. In the right of charity, and may I find what I have lost. So, if I could rephrase that, we're saying a special prayer that mm-hmm. everyone is like they're blind. We're blind. You wake up, your default. Status is that you're blind. You're presumed, assumed to be blind until Hashem open up your eye, op- opens up your eyes. And then it brings a, a pasuk, a verse that talks about Hagar, that Hagar, Hagar, she was with her son, Ishmael, Yishmael, and he's dying of thirst and she has no options and she just deposits him and then Hashem opens up her eyes and she sees the water and she's able to save her her child. So the prayer that we're saying is, Hashem, help us. We're blind. We don't know where the thing is. It's lost. And just like you open up the eyes of the blind of Hagar and everyone's eyes were just always blind. Now, let me find my lost object. Yeah. Is that right? So we give the donation and we uh, said the prayer. What happened next? So... Um, me and my father were looking a lot and we just couldn't find it. And until my parents were sitting on the couch and my father said, why don't you check by the sides of the couch? So I was like sticking my hand in and it was really annoying. And I was sticking one end and then the other end and then went to the next couch and I did one end and then I was like, okay, it's for sure not on the other ones. So my father's like, okay, I'll do it. So my father just like stuck in one hand in one of them and another one in one of them. And then he said, Man, what would, how happy would you be if you, if I found your camera? And I said, like, really happy. And then my father just, like, took the camera out of the side of the couch. And, like, yeah. So you're happy now? <laughs> yeah. Have you been smiling ever since? Yeah. So if I could tell the audience what actually, like, the full story, we were looking for this camera, turned over the entire house in every nook. In every cranny, in every drawer, in every cabinet. I thought you maybe left it in one of your like sweatshirts. So I was checking the pockets of all the sweatshirts. Where could it be? I opened up every door. I looked under every mattress, under every, in every corner of every cabinet. It, it was gone in our couches. So they have like these two pillows on the bottom, but those two pillows are not removable. 
But if you kind of open the, 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 if you split them, like between them, sometimes there's like things that fall in there, like kids pacifiers and the like. I actually, I actually, last week, when we were looking for it last week, I opened up the, the, the couch to see maybe it fell between the cushions. And I never thought to look at the edges of the couches where the kind of the, the hand rest of the couch abuts with the cushion. I never thought of thinking about that. I was blind, like the prayer says. And then we started looking for it. And because, you know, there are three couches in the living room, it was in the very last one. It was in the very last one. And I just, I never thought of checking there until the Amai said, the Amai kind of placed this idea in our heads. Why don't we look over there? So this is the story. So now you have the camera. Mm-hmm. And have you lost it yet? Um, I'm pretty sure it's on my desk. <laughs> it better be. <laughs> um, yeah, but. So what, what do you plan to, like, what kind of pictures do you plan taking with this camera now that we found it? Um, anything that's like, I don't know, pretty, I guess. Anything that's nice and pretty? Yeah, or like cool or fun. I don't know. Let me ask you a different question. How's it like to have a new baby brother? It's really fun. It's really fun. Why is it fun? Because I like babies and I like to hold them and I just like like to play with them. And how is Yisrael Mayer behaving, in your opinion? Great. Great. <laughs> okay. Okay, now final question. Miriam, mm-hmm. you went through a story in your life. You had a camera that you cherished. You loved it. You're taking pictures. It was, it was, it was amazing. You're able to take pictures of your siblings and of your friends and of nice sunsets. And you lost it. You didn't have it for for a few months, a month and a half, or two months, whatever it was. And you basically, I, I kind of gave up on finding it. And if you remember last night, <laughs> you remember what I told you. After you made the tzedakah, you gave the fifteen dollars to the poor families in Israel, and you said the prayer. I said, I'm not sure it's going to work. I said, Miriam, you know that, right? I said, I'm not sure it's going to work, but we're, we're going to try. Now you have it. What did you learn? What are the lessons that you learned from this story? I learned that if you actually really dive in, like I actually like dive in and I gave that stucca, then like I actually found it. And like. You feel like Hashem's actually listening to what you're saying? Yeah. That is an amazing lesson. Miriam, thank you so much for coming onto the Parsha podcast. I feel like this was an exquisite insight because this is, this is real faith in action. We have a problem. We are missing something. We feel lost or we have lost something. And of course, the Almighty knows everything. Hashem knows everything. And it's us who are blind. And here we have an example where we, we felt like, you know, we look, I was looking for this for a long time. I really tried to find it. You know that, Miriam, right? Yeah. I really tried to find it because you were so devastated when you lost your camera, but I was blind. And Hashem opened up our eyes and said, why don't we just check there? And we checked there, the last place in the house that we checked, and we found it, and the story has a happy ending. But I'm happy that you shared your story, because this story, I think, could be very illuminating. Do you know what that means? Yeah. It could be very inspiring. Do you know what that means? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. It could be very inspiring for other people, because it's a reminder that a lot of what we learn is very theoretical. We can't see Hashem in our world. We can't see Him with our eyeballs. And we dive and we pray, and it feels like, sometimes it feels like we're just talking and who's listening. And here we have an example of a story that we feel, I feel this very strongly, that we had a problem, we talked to Hashem, we made a contribution, we made a donation, we gave tzedakah, and Hashem opened up our eyes. And I was sitting on the same couch. How many times were we sitting on that couch? The same couch that was, you know, hosting your camera. We must have sat on it, I don't know, a hundred times, five hundred times since you lost it and never thought of sticking your hand in there and try to find it. Until yeah. we did the tefillah, we did the prayer, we gave the stuck, we gave the charity and Hashem says, well, maybe look, maybe put your hand in right there. I put my hand in, oh, I feel it, I felt it. And then I said to you, how happy would you be if I found it? Any parting words for the podcast, Miriam? Um, what do you think your father does when your father comes to record podcasts? I think he is like talking in this weird empty room into the microphone. <laughs> um, yeah, and think of this anyone listening? Just, like, <laughs> talking like really, really loud, like and then and what, what da, I da, say? Da, Like, would you want to do be, become a podcaster when you get older? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> well, Miriam, thank you so much for joining the Parsha Podcast. 
I really appreciate you telling your story. And Miriam, do you know my email address? Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com. Say it again. Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Have an incredible, wonderful, splendid rest of your week. And have an incredible, sensational, stupendous Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.